Hello, homies. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to take a moment to thank our first ever Patreon supporters. So a huge thank you to Emily McAteer, Camilla Scher, and Kerry Archer. Thank you so much for supporting the show. It means so, so much to me. So if you would like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com forward slash homeopathy hangout to make a $5 monthly donation. So our guest today is Gabriel Cambraia Neva, who is a Brazilian researcher and homeopath. After years of living in the Amazon and conducting research on literature and native Amazonia, Gabriel was granted the President Doctoral Scholarship at the University of Manchester, where he completed his PhD. During those years of research, his first son demonstrated how effective homeopathy is, which led Gabriel to the Northwest College of Homeopathy in Manchester, where he graduated as a homeopath. Following the principles of classical homeopathy, Gabriel has been treating children and adults both in the United Kingdom and in Brazil as a registered member of the Society of Homeopaths in the UK. Gabriel's practice is mostly based on homeopathic potencies called LMs, which are gentle and effective water-based remedies. According to the father of homeopathy, the physician Samuel Hahnemann, these remedies are the ones most perfected as there are hardly any aggravations. Reactions are seen faster and the duration of treatment is drastically reduced. Gabriel recently opened his practice in Holm in Manchester, where he attends patients in person and online. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now my mum and your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangout. Today, we get to chat with Gabrielle Cambraia Neva from the UK. Welcome, Gabrielle. Thank you for having me. Although the accent is probably going to give you away that originally from Brazil, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, Gabrielle, tell us a little bit about how you were first introduced to homeopathy, because I know homeopathy is quite popular in Brazil, right? So how were you introduced to it? Yeah, it is, actually. The funny thing is that I didn't know that I was first introduced to homeopathy when I was in my mom's belly. But I didn't know that until I started studying homeopathy. And I started studying homeopathy because of my son as a baby. It's a very common thing. Yeah, I, someone told me, don't give Calpo, give Belladonna. And I did it. It was amazing. And then after a few success stories with him, I was wondering what this is about. Mm. So I found out, luckily, there is a college here in Manchester. And yeah, and I started, I told myself, I'm going out just to study one year, just to treat my family. And... <laughs> And etc. Now, yeah, and then I, I got in love with it. Oh, that's a beautiful story to hear because often I get the female homeopaths on and they'll say when they got children, that's how they got into homeopathy. So it's really nice to see a dad that got into homeopathy by treating their children. I love it. That's so cool. Uh, and what yeah. do you feel was it about a homeopathy that drew you to it and made you continue past that first? I think there is no greater pleasure in witnessing or being together with someone that is suffering and you give a remedy and you get better. Mm. It's something like, it's hard to tell a pleasure that is, it's a immense, it's amazing. And then with my son started as well, like he was having earache, for example, and then mm. you give chamomile and in 10 minutes, how is your ear? Which ear? And, but you have ear pain. And 
no, I don't have ear pain. <laughs> and the boy was holding his ears, screaming his lungs out before. And this was the first year. And then with the second year, and then I started treating my chronic cases. Well, this just got even in a greater degree. My first case with a, was an asthma case. And the boy was going to A&E every month. The last visit to the A&E, he was resuscitated. Wow. And from That's the pretty mother, hardcore for a first case. <laughs> she was desperate. Mm-hmm. And she said, she knows someone that knows me. And, oh, Gabriel is doing homeopathy. And then after three months of treatment, the boy never had an asthma attack again. And I told her, that, I told the mother, after this, I can even, I can retire now. <laughs> I did my job. It's done. It's fine. Thank you. Because it's such a pleasure. And mm. so there is no greater, I think, yeah. Satisfaction, kind of, hey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, amazing. And where along the lines did you get interested in alum potencies? And maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what alum potencies are, because we haven't, we've got like 130 episodes now, but we haven't really talked about the alum potencies very much. So I'm excited for our topic today. Oh, great. Yeah. It was this first case was an LM case. Okay. Uh, and I think I was interested in LMs because I'm someone who, who reads something and, oh, there's written to do like this. So I'm going to do exactly like this. And uh, LMs, LM is 50 millesimals. They are a kind of potency that Hahnemann developed towards the end of his life. Not uh, Actually, we only got to know through the sixth edition of the Organon that was only published in the 20th century, on the, the 20s, actually, 20th century. And we actually, at that time, no one knew exactly what this was about. So it was until the 50s or 60s that people start to understand what this potency is about. So usually we have, we work with the centesimal, so your listeners can understand the topic, yeah. with most homeopaths. And the whole tradition of homeopathy was built on the potencies we call centesimals. And the centesimals, they're called centesimals because they are diluted by 100. It's one drop or one grain or whatever, one part to 99 parts. Mm-hmm. So then you you succuss, you, you energize it, and mm-hmm. it turns into the first centesimal because it's one part to 99, so it's 100. With the LMs, we go until 3C, the third centesimal, but after that, we dilute one part to 500. And then from this 500 dilution, we go for 100 and 100 again, but then you are multiplying 500 by 100. So that's why you get the 50 millesimals, 50,000, because you are, the, you are multiplying 500 by 100. But anyway, and what we get in the end is a remedy that is much more gentle. Mm-hmm. And there is another dynamic in the treatment. And that's something that I really enjoy. It's because first, Hahnemann saying is the most perfect remedy. And he says this clearly in the, I can quote to you the paragraph where, which he says that. But anyway, he says the most perfect and it's faster. The treatment is reduced the time. It's more reliable because you have the repetition 
of the remedy, make sure that things are going on. And because you have, as a homeopath, has to accompany the case or being closer to the case, you can tune, fine-tune the, the tree. Yeah, okay. So it's different from giving. And the work of Dr. Handley it was very important. Dr. He Rima uh, Handley, and she was the one who wrote the homeopathic love story. Oh, okay. Yeah, we've yeah. had an episode on the podcast about that. I haven't read it myself, but Barbara yeah. Roberts did an episode on that. Oh, cool. And she wrote another book, very important, In Search of the Later Hanuman. Okay. And in which she went to the archives and analyzed his case book. And so she's talking how he was working at that time. And it's so interesting, so beautiful, in fact, to see how he developed the lambs, really. Since 1835, when the chronic disease is published, he was already not using dry doses. This thing that I was thought like, oh, give a remedy and wait, give one dry dose and wait. Hahnemann was not doing that when he published Chronic Diseases. And he was already using the centesimals in water. And with that, and he goes experimenting, experimenting, and then he develops LMs, which are water-based remedies. And yeah, it took so long to, to understand this, the changes that Hahnemann went through because of historical kind of events, really, because of the fact that he didn't publish, he was about to publish the sixth edition. If he had published the whole mm. history of Yeah, it would have been completely be different. different. Yeah. yeah, because then we had the developments of the masters of homeopathy, mm. all based Canton, etc., all based on the centesimals. And yeah, in my college, I was the one who was doing something. You were the LM guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you just resonated uh, when, with that instantly when you started getting it. It's interesting that you use it straight from college. It's not, it's usually something that people will do as a post-grad. Like you usually learn about a little bit of college, but it's not until afterwards when you go do a bit more professional development you might start like experimenting with the alums. It's really interesting that you did that. Was that your second year? I think you said that you already. Yeah, using that. yeah. Wow. As soon as I understand that there was a change in Hahnemann's work mm. through the editions of the organon, I wanted to understand. But what are these changes? And mm. I was lucky enough because there is one teacher in the college oh. who is a specialist. Oh, in so I went to her and it was great because Angela Zajak, who wrote about it and has years and years of experience with it. And is it easy um, enough for the pharmacies for you to get that? Because I know like over here, it's pretty tricky to get alums. We have to, I'm in Australia, but we have to get it from New Zealand quite often. There's not that many alums that you can get in Australia. Oh, really? All right. I didn't know we were that lucky then. Yeah, it's quite easy. We have a few choices. Uh, actually, here mm. in London, they have, in fact, a very Hanumanian way of doing, of making. So I usually, I use the... Helios. The, oh, cool. Yeah, Helios. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And what sort of results do you get with the LA? Do you find, I know with the centesimal potencies, quite often you can initially get an aggravation. So one of the ways that I was taught is that you can give a centesimal to start off with, because you'll get like a strong response pretty quickly. And then, you know, it's the right remedy or not. And then after that, you give the same remedy in alum kind of as an ongoing, because the alums can sometimes be a little bit slow 
to act, but I know I'm sure you're going to tell me differently. <laughs> I'm going to, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they are not. Mm. They are the opposite. They are, okay. they are fasting. Mm. And this is not, and it's not me. It's uh, I'm not saying this. Hanuman yeah. saying this yeah. in the first place. And then all the authors say the same. There is a reduction in time. The treatment shorter with the lens. And I think also this has to do with the dynamic of the treatment. Because Hanuman used, you can see that on um, in search of the later Hanuman, with the studies of his case books of uh, Dr. Handling, that he was giving a potency for a week or two, mm. sometimes three, but very fast turn of, and then he went to the, or repeat the same potency if it's, that's the case, but usually it goes higher. So you go higher, you change potency and you go first, you can, yeah, you have uh, the first reaction is an amelioration. Mm. And then in three days, four days after the start of the remedy, you know if the remedy is right or not. So that's a good thing to have control of treatment because so my patients call me back or send me, we talk through message on the fifth day of treatment. Mm. And then I know if the remedy is working or not, or what's going on. And then the potency will be changed pretty quickly. And I think that's one of the factors to the shortening of the treatment uh, period. And because of that, there are many advantages because we are closer to the patients and we can understand what's going on mm. and feels held in the mm. process. We have a greater, this greater support also, and the fact that there is an amelioration at the beginning, you have less chances of a patient like saying, no, I'm not doing this. Because if someone has a, yeah, an, an aggravation that is at the beginning, that brings a lot of discomfort, patient might leave treatment. So with the LMs, it's more likely that the patient will handle an aggravation because there will be probably an aggravation mm. towards the end of the treatment. And the aggravation towards the end of the treatment is means that if everything went well, it means that you are achieving cure or a better state of health. Mm. And then stop the remedy, the aggravation subsidizes, and then the person is without the symptoms. So that's the usual successful treatment with LMs. And um, yeah, I even made a kind of a list for you with... Yeah with advantages you can adjust the dose on a very quick way we talked about this already and you can monitor the reactions the repetition of the remedies it's another factor an important factor i've seen homeopath giving i think it's common practice mm -hmm. to give one m which is a kind of high dose high potency for a month I don't think that's the ideal kind of, because I think you can bring aggravations, you can bring, I'm much, much more comfortable with giving LMs on a longer period of time than repeating a centesimal, especially their high potencies in a day-to-day -day basis for a month or two. I don't know. I just, for me, it feels safer. It feels quicker and more reliable. And that's everything Hahnemann was saying on the second paragraph of the organ. 
that we need, that's the ideal, that's what we want to achieve. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this is the only way and there is no other way, because even Hahnemann and Dr. Henley showed us that on her book. Hahnemann was also using, although mostly LMs, he was also using centesimals towards the end of uh, on his practice in Paris. I think there is a place for centesimals. I'm not saying that. I'm not told. Totally oh, that's interesting. That. So towards the end of his life, he would use the LM and the centesimals still. So he was... Maybe it's just that individual case by case, like maybe looking at the vital force and seeing which, how I think the person would respond. Exactly. Gabriel, something that, the other thing that confused me about LMs, because I got into a stage shortly after I graduated where I was using LMs as well, but there was just this constant debate about where to start. And people would say, start with the, always start with the LM1. And some people would say, no, always start at the three or a five or a 10. And I'll be like, oh, it's too confusing. I'm going back to the centesimals. But have you got like a, a idea of, do you think it matters where people start? Or do you always start at LM1? Or what sort of advice do you have for the homeopaths listening? I do think there's a place to start because Hahnemann says that. And, and he says to start with the lower potencies. Mm. So I think we should do that. Although some people do the opposite, start in the very high and go down. There are those as well. But I usually start with a very low potency, let's say one. But I sometimes match with the energy of the patient as well. But usually very low. But some people say, well, until six is low, you can choose whatever... I try to stick with the very lower ones, one to three, to see. And then work um, your way up from there? Yeah, because it depends as well how you're going to plan. What's your treatment plan? Mm. Because if it's give LM1 and talk to the patients in two months, Mm. and then it's a long period to be in LM1. But if we are changing possibly the potency every week, you're going to go high anyway. So there is... It's not a problem if you don't start where it should be with the energy of the patient, because especially cases skin, you don't want uh, you don't want mm. to disturb the system. Yeah. yeah, so it's good to go gentle and going high, so that people get used to the treatment, to the remedy, how to take the remedy, and understand the subtlety of dilution and etc. Some people say one of the cons of, of LMs is this because it's different from taking one pill. You yeah, describe to... the process for us because I, I never did it properly. <laughs> so so when, the... the reason I got into LMs was actually because I had an eczema patient and I was worried about, I wanted to get sulfur, but I was worried about the aggravation. So my first LM was a sulfur uh, LM1 and then I think I worked up to about three or four. But I know uh -huh. the proper way to do LMs is that there is, yeah, t you tell us the proper way because I know I did it wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I just well, said two drops on the tongue, it in between, but you tell us the right way. Okay. Uh -huh. What Hahnemann was doing is putting in, diluting into cups. Mm. So the patient dilutes from a remedy bottle. And a liquid, hey, because the alums are in liquids usually. In liquid. Mm. So a, a remedy bottle that the patient will because. shake, succus the bottle. And then depending on... Nowadays, it's easier. Homeopaths like to send with a dropper, mm, dropper bottle. Yeah. But that's not, Hahnemann was doing a tablespoon or teaspoon. And some people, some pharmacists are, find it even difficult. In Brazil, when I was there, I was prescribing to a friend and I ordered from the pharmacy, I want 150 milliliters 
of, of a remedy. And they were like, no, our maximum is 20 milliliters. <laughs> they don't even sell this anyway, because it's a bigger bottle. Yeah. Yeah. So I use the bigger bottles, mm-hmm. 100 milliliters, let's say. I think Hahnemann was using 114 milliliters. Okay. And so you put the liquid from the bottle in a spoon, depending, tablespoon, teaspoon, and then put in half a glass of water. And then stir and take one spoon from this glass. Mm. And that's it. But actually, Hahnemann was doing this process maybe two, three times, four mm. times. So take uh, that one teaspoon of water into the next glass, stir it, take one glass, teaspoon of that okay. into the next glass. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the patient, was, they were doing this every day or every other day. Also, Hahnemann was telling people to in, inhale the remedy with alcohol. Then it's just a small bottle of alcohol with a grain of the remedy mm. and inhale it's a very easy way and very gentle and the cases and for sensitive patients mm. uh, and some people apply to the pulse points as well and i have heard of people putting it in the umbilicus as well like in the in the belly button <laughs> yeah yeah and actually herman did that as well ah. um, to suggest patients sensitive patients Mm. to actually to take the remedy and put somewhere uh, on the skin but not usually not on only on healthy skin okay yes oh it's funny the things our clients do with remedies I just have to tell you this I gave a remedy to a friend the other day and for a keloid scar on her back and a month later I'm like how are you going with your remedy and she said oh I don't take it that often because I don't often get my daughter to be able to spray it on I'm like what? It's like you're supposed to put it in your mouth. And I had another client. Oh my gosh. I gave her some euphrasia drops <laughs> to put on her tongue. And she emailed me or texted me and said, oh my gosh, the stuff is stinging my eyes so badly. I'm like, oh, you're no. not supposed to put it in your eyes. It's not going Oh no! And I had a client with eczema that came back and she's like, oh, this stuff isn't working. I keep spraying it on my eczema, but it's not going away. So I obviously need to be clearer about what people need to do with their remedies, but it is actually quite funny what people do. But Yeah, yeah. I was writing the other day a prescription and I was thinking about it. Actually, we need to be very precise. And then we end up writing in there and put directly into your mouth. Yeah, because into your uh, clean because- mouth. <laughs> exactly (laughs) Uh, and then because we suppose we for us it's like of course you're going to do that yeah but no it's actually sometimes especially with lms as well because with as it's not a just a pill that you just pop in your Mm. mouth i think there are more options on what to do with it (laughs) you've got liquid drops Mm, what else can i do with these (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah is there anything else, uh, Gabrielle, that you want to share with us about allium potencies that you think our listeners um, need to know? Or maybe some homeopaths no, that think, might be interested in trying it? Yeah, I think usually people say, oh, LMs for sensitive cases only, and they are not meant for general use. And mm, yeah, I, th- I was going to ask you that. If you've just bashed your head open and there's blood coming out, would you give Arnica 30C or Arnica L? I would give whatever I have at hand. Yeah, <laughs> true. But if I have my a kit with a lamb, I would give a lamb. You would still give um, me I did already in acute. You can either use, it's not the recommended, but if you don't have time, give a dry LM pill. It's not the end mm-hmm. of the world. And then follow with uh, wet doses. Mm. But nowadays I have a kit of alcohol 
that I use for me. First aid, uh, yeah. You know, a okay. little first aid at near lambs, like arnica, aconite, very little okay. alcohol bottles that you can inhale if you need a remedy. And they are, yeah, it's quite good because they last forever, right? And yeah, so... Some people say don't use in acutes, and I disagree with that. You can use in acutes, you can use in basically most cases, really. Mm. But I think there is also, as you're saying, homeopathy is all about the individual, the individual homeopath and the individual patient. So what works best for these two people involved in this treatment? Mm. I think that's the what, because Tesmos, they do work as well. Mm. So not... I'm I love your passion that. for them. That's really cool. It's making me want to go pull out my alums and go give them another go. <laughs> oh, now, Gabriel, you actually had a PhD before you started studying homeopathy. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that was in and how you got involved, like why you decided to study that? Oh, in fact, it was more or less at the same time that I started studying. I was still doing my PhD and my PhD started because I accompany my wife, who is an ethnographer, mm. to her field work in the border of Brazil, Venezuela and Guyana, former British Guyana, where you have the Mount Roraima. This amazing kind of uh, geological formation, like a tabletop mountain. This is amazing. And the uh, Amerindian people who, and we went to leave the Amerindian people who inhabit the surroundings. Mm. Of, it's a great, a big area of, of traditional. That must be magical. Well, the whole Amazon is, it's Amerindian, right? It's Amerindian territory. But anyway, that we lived there in this border for three years and something and my background is literary studies so when i went there i started to listen to their stories but also to research the literature the written literature of the region and then i found out it's amazing and we as brazilians we think oh up there we, we don't really realize first the size the amount of languages the diversity and so rich so beautiful mm-hmm. and so i f- was yeah amazed by all this richness of culture of literature but also the way in which the, this literature recreated amerindian uh, knowledge amerindian narratives amerindian cosmology so then my phd project was born and yeah and, and you said you said your mom was an ethnographer as well hey yeah, yeah, exactly. So the same, cool. Yeah, it is actually because I went to the area, to the same area, the same like the neighboring people. We, my partner Lisa, she worked with, and my mother Nadja, she worked with the Wapshana. They are neighboring people. So I went there for the first time when I was seven, and I went a few times during my childhood. I went there between seven and twelve with the main part of her field work. So in my holidays, I always went there because she was a lot there. She lived there for some time. So yeah, it was a return to the area. And then I went back to do archival research as a PhD candidate. And then I submitted my thesis. It's about the literature of the Guyana. So I want to understand if there is a region of the Guyanas that is a literary region of the Guyanas that is strongly linked to the Amazon, to native Amazon knowledge. So that's my PhD. Mm. I submitted last year. And now I'm here starting to plan another return. Yeah, with, tell us because, about that. 
because I'm amazed with homeopathy. It's so beautiful, as I was telling you, so beautiful to see people getting better. And I think it's an essential knowledge. And healthcare in those regions, they are difficult. And homeopathy is something that empowers people to take their own health in their hands and to take care of themselves. I'm not saying that other forms of healthcare are not, they're important to being placed, to exist, and et cetera, to be offered. But as a first line mm. of homeopathy is so useful, and that's something I would like to share with my friends there. So I've, I had a meeting with Homeopaths Without Border, and they were very excited about the project of forming homeopaths, basically, in the Amazon. And then I was invited to give a talk on LMs last month in a, a seminar. The name of the event is, it was a, a seminar of popular therapies and homeopathy mm-hmm. in Rio de Janeiro. And they have this institute of popular therapy. And their work there, it's so important of, of forming what they call popular homeopaths. Because in Brazil, you have this strong distinction between medical homeopaths and non-medical homeopaths. And as everywhere in the world, there is this tension between Mm. those a little bit. So I always thought that all the homeopaths in Brazil are medical doctors as well. So can you actually practice as a lay person too in Brazil? You can, yes. You can. The medical doctors, they try to prevent, Mm. uh, they they try to stop this practice but there is nothing law that is contrary and there is even like a a regulatory a work category of like therapeutic homeopath or something yeah therapist homeopath therapist who is not a a medical doctor is a therapist it's a holistic therapy or something yeah it's under holistic therapy and so there is regulation to work as a homeopath um Yeah, so they have this institute that has an important work in forming what they call popular or Mm. therapists, homeopaths, but also in developing remedies, finding remedies. So their work is amazing in terms of like empowerment of communities and the spread of this knowledge through, through religion places. They share this. So nowadays we have they were telling me, I didn't know, I was like fascinated by the fact that nowadays we have even people like mediums receiving spirits and prescribing homeopathy because wow. they learn with this institute. Anyway, they had already an, this idea of sharing knowledge and with the native Amazonian people. Amerindians, people who live in the by the rivers in the Amazon, and they really need a, a way of sorting the first line of yeah, you know, of defense there in terms of healthcare. So we are talking about going there and presenting this idea. I have to get in touch with my friends in the area and see. But I think they are receptive to those kinds of ideas. And I found out recently that there is. This amazing book, The Falling Sky by David Kopenawa. It's a, he's a Yanomami shaman. And the Bruce Aubert, who is the homeopath, uh, the, the anthropologist, anthropologist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, who made some notes to the book. And he at some point made a note saying that 
this shamanic thinking of the anomalic shamanic thinking, it's like a symbolic homeopathy. Wow. It's, because it's, I think it's because they were try, treating likes with the likes. likes yeah. yeah. So I think there is a relation between the way the vitalist thinking of homeopathy with shamanism and their cosmology. I think it will be a great dialogue. Rich. Oh my gosh, that sounds very interesting. So Gabriel, I really hope this project goes ahead because I'm just thinking of homeopathy for health in Africa where Camilla and Jeremy Sure have gone into the tribes there and taught the people how to use homeopathy for themselves. And I've actually interviewed some of the locals on the ground in Kilimanjaro that are using homeopathy in their community. I've seen it. It's so yeah. cool. I love it. It was um, so exciting. Yeah. So it gets me very excited for what you guys can do as well. And these people, because they live closer to nature, I think they're more in tune with their bodies. And they, when you give them these remedies, I can see how they will feel the energy of homeopathy and resonate with that. Yeah. As- yeah. 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 I think it was beautiful episode, by the way. And <laughs> yeah, it was great to hear and see. There are some images, right? And yeah, I think they have different ways of relating to the world and to so to themselves and to what is health and what is disease. So in this sense, yeah, I think they, I think it makes a lot of sense, homeopathy, mm. in fact. Mm. And also, as you're saying, this being closer to, to, to the understanding the environment and being uh, tune, yeah. understanding the, the, their own environment and their own bodies mm. in a different way. I'm going to be following your journey. And once you've got this all set up, you have to come back on the show and tell us all about it and how the locals oh, thank you. found it. So Gabrielle, is there much. any last message that you want to leave our listeners with? And can you also tell them how they can get hold of you? Oh, the message is homeopathy is amazing and go for it, try it. And yeah, because it's an amazing way of healing and true healing. Apart from that, I think that's it. The way of getting in touch, it's I have my website's homeopathia with H-I-A dot org. Homeopathia dot org. Yeah. And there you have all my contacts and yeah, that's it. Excellent. We'll have it all in the show notes as well, but it's always nice to just say it on the show. Always super fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, please keep in the loop on how you go on the Amazon project. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being with you, talking with you. Wonderful. uh, Yeah. All the best. Speak with you soon. See ya. Bye. Bye.